Welcome to the What's the Point podcast with Andy Evans. Andy Evans is a surveyor. Maps are his thing, and making maps is where he ended up in his career to date. This podcast is going to explore the wonderful world of survey and mapping, and hopefully it's going to get more followers than its self-indulgent blog. Any help and contributions are welcome. So, let's get started with today's episode. Far away. So, um, welcome back to the uh, the What's the Point podcast. I'm here with uh, a gentleman called John Burke, who um, I've only ever met virtually. Uh, we're face to face with uh, with the cameras on, um, and I met um, uh, John. Met him um, over on Twitter, where um, I was getting involved with active travel type stuff and and trying to do the right thing for my hometown, Chester. Um, and his tweets. Uh, appeared in my timeline talking about work that he'd done in Hackney with LTNs and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so I've, I've done the usual stalking on, on, on John on his LinkedIn profile. Uh, and it, it's um, so he's a leader in strategic and um, practical municipal decarbonation right now, um, which is all, all a good thing. So that that is interesting for me from a sustainability point of view. Um, those that know the work that I'm doing in the institution on sustainability is we're trying to just make sure that our, our aims are our, our golden threads for the strategy of the institution for the next three years. One of them is sustainability. So it'd be good to have a chat about that, John. Um, and um, yeah, I, you know, I, I know you primarily through your work that you were doing with the LTNs in Hackney. Um, I see you're currently working with climate change and you're the climate change and decarbonation lead for Gloucester City Council. Um, and, and you kindly agreed as some people do by me hassling you on Twitter to come onto the podcast. So welcome to the What's the Point podcast, John. Have you got anything you want to add to that or a bit you want to say about yourself before we get into the, the questions? I think you said, I think you, I think you said probably, uh, I wonder whether or not the audience of this podcast um, kind of is aware of, well, probably not anyway, but, but we did note the other day, albeit it must be incredibly frustrating for civil engineering surveyors, that my background, academic background, is as a civil engineer. Um, and I think, although I didn't practice for very long, basically because I was too interested in politics, um, I think that all forms of engineering disciplines are sadly underrepresented in politics. And I think that people who have a rigorous academic training or professional background in problem solving is exactly what the country needs at this point to view many of the challenges that we face as um, problems that require engineered solutions, um, you know, rather than kind of endless political pontification. Um, and I think that when I was in Hackney, I tried to bring some of that practical um engineering now to the work that I undertook across energy waste transport and public realm and just to have a quick canter through the things that I did when I was in um the 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 executive for four years or so um on energy for example delivered a publicly owned energy services company getting uh solar PV up onto the roofs of the um of the the corporate estate but also delivering with a combination of um grant funding um or eco funding and um and carbon offset funding from the council's planning process the largest private home thermal efficiency 
free thermal efficiency program in in the uk hackney green homes to simulate some of the recommendations of the climate change committee switch the the council over to a hundred percent renewable electricity on six and a half million pounds of annual consumption under renewable energy of guarantee sorry renewable energy guarantee of origin certificates as part of a pathway to a power purchase agreement um on waste i'm um, switched the local authority to fortnightly collections uh, eliminating 6,000 tonnes from uh, incineration uh, annually, um, representing obviously a significant reduction in our associated emissions, significantly increasing the recycling rate, um, delivering the first um, reverse vet, a state-based reverse vending machine in the UK and the first local authority partnership with the Library of Things to bring a, uh, a reuse library to CLR James in Dalston. Um, on transports, obviously, you've touched on the fact that I delivered the largest number of um, LTNs in the UK, largest number of school streets in the UK, kilometres of segregated cycle lanes, um, new bus priority um, and the elimination of... Um, of private car parking for the main road network to increase flows for um, public transport users in those bus lanes. Um, and then on public realm, delivered the largest urban forestry program in the UK, some 5,000 street trees, 1,000 mature parks trees, and um, and 30,000 uh, saplings in our green spaces, um, alongside one of the largest um, decar, one of the largest depaving programs um, in Europe, because obviously the flip side of that, that green infrastructure work to reduce temperatures during extreme heat events is also eliminating hard standing from our public realm and reimagining how it looks. Um, so we reduce the, the storage heater effect. So that was a quick canter through what I did when I was in the executive. And then subsequent to that, um, as you note, I now run uh, City of Gloucester's decarbonisation programme. And uh, I'm an advisor to the, um, the executive member for environment at Key Cities, which represents over half of the urban districts in the UK, helping to develop some environmental policies with them. And we recently produced um, a piece of research called uh, Emissions Down Leveling Up, which focuses on the economic potential of the transformation of our built environment and the public realm um, to reduce emissions, but also to, to improve local economic development and skills and training for people in left behind areas in the UK. Brilliant. I mean, yeah, phenomenal. I mean, in, in terms of... Um, uh, it's fine, terms... by the way, to do like a BBC yeah. thing where the kids come yeah, in, because yeah. as I said before, my kids are almost certainly going to kind of cartwheel in screaming and ask me to arbitrate on some very minor thing at some point. We have that right now. There's a question coming. What are you looking for? I'm not lost. I'm starling card. I thought... I don't know where you put it, so um, we'll find it later, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Hilariously yeah. angry teenage daughter there. I think you've got to keep that in. I think I will. Keep it in the <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Um, but again, I bet well actually I think to riff on that, I think, you know, a lot of what you know you've you've talked about your increased engagement in um, you know, politics with a small P in Chester. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean I think what people forget about that kind of group of activists is, you know, it's not their full time job. You know, no. it's remarkable what people like you are achieving in their cities because, you know. They've got a full-time job usually to hold down, you know, responsibilities towards maybe their parents. Um, and then they've got teenage daughters coming in looking for something and being angry at them, all whilst trying to, you know, 
promote bus lanes in their city or something. So, you know, they're, they're, for me, they're the little kind of platoons. They're my heroes, those people. Yeah, and, and that's interesting. There's two things there. One, what I was going to say before we were so uh, uh, impactfully re uh, interrupted there was I was saying, like, phenomenal amount of, of work you've done for Hackney and, and what you're doing now. And I think anyone that's employing you is very lucky to have you uh, there, you know, based on what you've delivered so far. So that's, that sounds awesome. But then, yeah, yeah, picking up on that piece about the, 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 the so-called bus lanes uh, in Chester, um, we did, as a, there was a working group got set up, we did a hell of a lot of work. There's a whole load of stuff on YouTube because all the meetings were recorded. They're there for public uh, work. We, um, I was talking to some, one of the last guests about what we were doing with the GIS side of things that I, you know, there's there's free stuff out there that you can just use. So I pulled in, a, there's a bit of software called QGIS. There was some data from the Ordnance Survey. We pulled it all together, did some analysis and enabled some of the storytelling around what. Uh, how the decisions have been made on some of the lanes and what was going on. And um, uh, it was, but like you say, it was all for free. And um, what's happened is it's all gone really quiet. Um, and the the locals that were involved are like, oh, flipping council and just, you know, taking all this work, they're doing nothing with their recommendations. It's like, what a waste of time. And there is a risk that they may not get the same support again. I think that won't be the case in terms of the, the people that are involved, but there's certainly some sort of uh, disgruntled, uh, uh, helpful locals that are feeling that they might not be so helpful next time. And I think that's a real, that's a really important message to the councillors to, to um, yeah, I know it's extra effort for them, but they do appreciate what was done, um, but they're, they're on the risk of losing it in the future if they're not careful. It's, a, it's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, but no, but thank you for the acknowledgement of the work done there. It's appreciated. Um, what we're doing there so well one of my I, I keep trying my what my, my maxim it as both as a you know previously as an elected politician and now as a kind of officer come i don't know activist it's not activist it's not a term i do but kind of like you know somebody's very interested in engineering some of the solutions to the problems that we face yeah is, and i think it's pertinent to this podcast is you know if you want to change the world you've got to change the world and i think yeah. there's a lot of talk about you know change as a metaphor in politics i'm not interested in change as a metaphor i'm interested in literally changing the layout of roads i'm interested in literally cha changing the built environment right and one of the the most difficult things you can do in an almost empty universe is create something where it didn't previously exist and you've touched on this but i was going to mention this before when you mentioned your wife's word to deliver a local um, play park. I mean, it's a remarkable thing in a universe where almost nothing exists and nothing existed at that point that you, through force of will, were able to put something in there that enhanced people's lives. It's an amazing thing. Um, and, I, and it's quite an addictive thing as well because once you do that, you're very committed. You know, you, you, the thrill of having created that positive change, I think for me anyway, is something that drives me on to, to, to do other things. But, you know, the the... I talk a great deal about how in terms of ecosystems. So a lot of my thinking around um, urbanism um, is through a lens of how healthy ecosystems function in the wider environment. And I often talk about to illustrate that the, the, the huge harm, right. 
that the motor vehicle now this is not a unit obviously in an industrialized society we'll continue to need to use motor vehicles to some extent the the the, the qualitative aspect of why we use those motor vehicles i think can change enormously which can then significantly reduce the dominance of those motor vehicles in our society but if we take a look you know, I often use the the example of invasive species in an ecosystem. If you go back a hundred years, not even a hundred years, in fact, you know, there's an extract I often share from as I walked out one summer's morning by Laurie Lee, where he spent time in London, and he talks about how the streets are just full of cyclists, right? And you virtually never saw cars, and that was in the thirties, so not yeah. even a hundred years ago, and that was in you know the capital city of the country. So elsewhere, you'd have seen virtually none of them. Um, you know, by introducing uh, the invasive species of the motor vehicle into our social ecosystem, it's had an absolutely enormous trophic cascade. I think the term is a trophic cascading effect on our mm -hmm. wider, the wider social life of our cities, how they function, and the reaction that we see from drivers or some drivers, not all drivers by any means, but some drivers um, to the changes that we're attempting to implement um, in order to, I think, resurrect that rich social life of our city. It's not just about reducing surface transport emissions. It's not just about uh, improving air quality. It's also about enhancing the quality of life, life yeah. of, of people who live in, in our cities and our conurbations. And, um, you know, I think that the, the reaction to that is evidence of, um, you know, how dominant the motor vehicle has become in our cities and how that is, you know, fundamentally, and I would argue extremely negatively, altered the, the, the geography of those cities. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's a, it's a, it is an interesting one. It is. The, we can go on forever about the reasons, the technical reasons for lowering emissions and, and you know, reducing wear and tear and, and you know, improving the, the resilience of existing infrastructure so that it lasts for longer by reducing the numbers of cars. The issue is that we're now, you know, based on the old description there of like 1930s bikes everywhere to, to now where it's cars everywhere. And there is a flip going back in London now, certainly I've seen some good stuff there where there's, you know, more bikes on the road than cars in certain places. Um, but the, the, there's this behavioural change that we that we haven't managed to to grasp and solve yet. You know, as you're saying, the, the backlash is more often not. Well, I drive my car everywhere. Why should I? Why should I change what I do? And that that being said, that you know, as a structuralist, you know, it's my strong view, and I think that the, it's a view that's supported by the evidence that. Behavior change is a product of structural change. I think that yeah. we have we, we, we've had a, we've had a, at least half a century of asking people nicely um, when it comes to surface transport emissions, and yet over fifty percent of all private car journeys are for leisure or shopping, yeah. and forty percent of all motor vehicle journeys. So forty percent of all journeys in England under two miles are taken by motor vehicle. And, you know, it's clear from the studies of people like um, Cus and Nicholas, which came out last year, that was a meta analysis of the interventions uh, of a dozen interventions for reducing cars in cities and, and a ranking of them by efficacy. The top three um, are all demand side policies. The top three are some form of 
road user pricing or congestion charging, right? Mm-hmm. Send a price signal. Control parking zones. The hero, the under, the underappreciated and unsung hero of surface transport emissions reductions in our city is the humble control parking zone, mm-hmm. um, and um, some form of of uh, motor vehicle restriction zone. So a low traffic neighbourhood, for example, or some form of pedestrianisation. They are the three main mechanisms for reducing cars in our cities. Um, and so, you know. Um, it's clear that behavior change um, arises from primarily from demand side policies. That being said, when you've implemented them as part of your negotiation with the wider public, you've also got to be able to say, but these are the mitigations that we're seeking to put in place as well. Yeah. Uh, but there's often an assumption that if we just put gold-plated cycleways outside everyone's home, people are suddenly going to jump onto bikes. And the reality is that cars are extremely convenient, um, very cheap, you know, never been cheaper to operate a motor vehicle or own a motor vehicle in, in British history than today. Um, and they also fulfill because of the way the marketing of motor vehicles is undertaken they also fulfill a deeper psychological need in individuals they are a hieroglyph of our success in the society in which we live and i talk a bit not long after i'd moved out of the borough and stood down from cabinet i wrote a a very long piece for the london society um which uh, was entitled something like there's no war on cars but perhaps we need one and it talks about these things at length and i think one of the assumptions even kind of i mean i think it's a dishonest assumption in some cases that the kind of militant drivers make is that people only drive for you know entirely legitimate reasons and we know that this is just nonsense we know it's nonsense and we also know you know then one of the other other arguments that people make is people only own cars if they've got like a, a very specific defined use for those cars you know less than 12 percent, i think of all motor vehicle journeys in the uk are for commuting or business purposes the overwhelming majority are discretionary yeah. uh, and you know we can and and do need to do something about that and that's not just kind of the hobby horse of so-called environmentalists like me you know take a look at the surface transport um, section of the climate change committee's six carbon budget and it's very clear on its balanced decarbonization pathway that we need to fully electrify the land transport sector by 2050 alongside a reduction in miles on the balanced decarbonization pathway so not even like the most ambitious one of some 17 percent, which is billions upon billions of miles a year so we've got to do you know the answer as in everything in environmentalism is all of the above, really, demand-side yeah. policies and supply-side policies. Fantastic. All right, I'm going to just stop for a minute. And what happened there? Yeah, no worries. So uh, you were going to say, um, yeah, we could keep going for, for ages, but... Um... Oh, yeah, I know you were saying we could talk about... I mean, we could, t- you know, it's endlessly fascinating. We could talk about how to decarbonise the incineration process for about two days. I mean, yes. probably still wouldn't get to an answer. But, so, you know, I'm conscious of the fact that uh, you've got a very specific focus um so do uh do press on with that yeah um albeit albeit, i think the point that you made before i think focusing on geography is a really important lens through which we don't analyze enough political problems and i first realized this when i wrote my master's thesis on riot phenomena um and like geography is really important to that so the royal geographical society undertook um 
you know, various studies of the Brixton riots, which helped support some of the wider judicial reviews that were going on around riots in, in the UK at that time. And I think thinking about, you know, th thinking about political challenges in spatial terms is really important. Um, it's something that, I mean, there are lots of things that our politicians fail to do, but one of them is, I, you know, I'd often kind of characterize politicians that I'd worked with in terms of the matrix, the film, the matrix, you mm -hmm. basically got three kinds of politicians, right? You've got politicians who are just ambling along and to some extent kind of you, Rishi Sunak's a good example of this. He's got like that kind of like sunny optimism, despite the world burning around us of a kind of billionaire Silicon Valley kind of mogul type, right? For whom nothing's ever gone wrong. So we can't imagine anything ever going wrong, but you know, there are politicians that are in the matrix and don't know they're in the matrix. Then there are politicians that are in the matrix and know they're in the matrix, but don't know how to, you know, jump off buildings in the matrix and get things done. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there are politicians that know they're in the matrix and can operate within the matrix. And they're the rarest of all. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, being in the matrix is also a way of describing how to think about the world. The matrix, if you'll recall, is actually quite spatial. Yeah. Right. They're, they're often able to imagine the built environment in different ways. Right. And I think that thinking about a variety of political challenges, particularly in the urban environment, in spatial terms, understanding that wider matrix, if you will, within which you're operating is a really important way of thinking about those challenges and, you know, can help you to devise, I think, solutions to those problems. Yeah, no, that, that's that's a really good description. I like that. Thank you. And that leads us very nicely to, you know, thinking about that in, in the, the point of the podcast in, in matrix terms. Um, I'm going to sort of swiftly move on to the to the five questions we've got and uh, see where we go with that. Um, is, so, quick, is it a quick fire round that we do in? Yeah, well, it, it depends on your answers, to be honest with you. <laughs> so... It's, uh, I don't. It's, I, I, as you'll have noticed, I don't excel, Andy, in um, in quick fire responses. But I'll do my very best given right. the time constraints. <laughs> well, let's see what happens. So, question one, uh, John. When was the last time you used a map? Um, about two weeks ago, I used a yeah. map of Groningen. I used I used a paper map of Groningen that I bought from for one euro fifty, which I thought was a bit pricey actually, um, considering that you normally get a free one. I'm in the center of Groningen so that I could go and find some old arms houses mm -hmm. um, and um, and visit some of the gardens of Groningen and take some nice photographs, um, which I then immediately tweeted to demonstrate the superiority of Groningen's approach to um, surface transport and um, um, urban mobility to, to the UK's. So very recent. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And it's interesting you picked on the the, the um the uh oh what's it called little Holland uh, what's the what's the mini what's Holland the, mini Holland thank mini, you mini Holland mini Holland is what um was delivered on the, well by Clyde Lokes, who's still his deputy leader of Waltham Forest Council bit of a legend yeah. in uh, active travel terms I mean we were delivering. Low traffic neighbourhoods in Hackney before Clyde was born, but I think one of the things that Clyde has done, if you'll allow me a, a minor, um, minor detour, yeah, 
a minor detour, yeah, discursion, um, is, um, and I talk about this in an article that I wrote for, I think, the Architects Journal um, last year, is the way in which they've co-located really good design with filtration. So, you know, I think is peerless. I mean, I did some, I think, really good work around rainwater gardens, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that the work that they have undertaken to change the geography of, of, of Waltham Forest through strategic filtration, but delivering alongside, co-locating with that, you know, um, street furniture such as seating, so you're walking home on that hot day if you're a pensioner and maybe you're, you know, your ankles are a bit swollen from walking in the heat and you sit down under the shade of a tree, but also some of that can double as play infrastructure as well, um, yeah. whilst at the same time eliminating, um, uh, you know, previous rat runs of improving why the mental health and physical health and social well-being whilst, whilst creating a space that, um, you know, enhances um, eyes on the street for fall and greater neighbouring. So I think that, you know, I think we're in, in that, 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 that probably one of the key achievements, you know, the, the, the mini Holland didn't create low traffic neighbourhoods, but one of its key achievements was to, to really bring, sorry, I've just whacked my elbow, but to, was to bring really good design into filtration for the first yeah. time if you go back and have a look at the filters individual filters that have been built into like urban conurbations you know i mean they go back over 100 years but a lot of the ones that exist in kind of urban you know were put in the, the 70s and 80s and nobody knew that they were called filters then they just yeah. like them and they're just yeah. you know but they're they're pretty ugly often a few bollards pretty glum looking whereas i think that they're the work that Clyde and Waltham Forest have undertaken has been really good in creating a much more attractive public realm whilst also delivering tied, tried and tested um, projects for eliminating rat running, surface transport emissions, improving air quality, etc. Yeah, it's a good point. It's um, it's that sort of placemaking, isn't it? That that um, it's not just an intervention; it's also creating something where people want to be. Um, we did a we did this thing in Chester where um, we, it was like do a walk, take a walk into town along a route that you normally do, and then take photos of key things, but not the adults. Get the kids to do it and see what they yeah. You know, and then then they did a whole load of displays about you know um, this is my walk from our house into the middle of town and, and, and sort of uh, they interviewed um, the children as well and so they said well why did you take a picture of this and what was interesting about that and so and my daughter was like well i just like the wall it had a nice texture on it or there was a bit where there's this big gray piece of concrete wall she's like why why did you take a photo of this I said well i thought it would look really good if there was a big mural on the back of it or something like that and just make it feel a bit more nicer and, and it's things where um it's that stuff stuff that sometimes gets is known about but often gets forgotten or overlooked um, is that is that placemaking, isn't it? Which, which you yeah, I, 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 so I, the, I mean, I think placemaking is an appropriate term for it, but I try to use, I try to avoid the term placemaking because it it is the the term of choice yeah. of developers who actually don't yeah. know how to make. When they say placemaking, what they usually mean is hideous glass structures that are highly alienating and you know usually like a handful of mid-sized yeah. specimens that then provide enough canopy cover but that's essentially what it is i would call it more 
because they tend to be smaller scale. I'd call it more um, um, attractive cells in the urban tapestry. Yeah. You know, if you try to think about uh, if you try to think about one of those you know classic American type quilt blankets where they've got their each individual squares. I think mm-hmm. what Waltham Forest has been very good at has has been you know delivering individual squares that are you know have high design high quality you know firstly built to last with high quality materials been designed well highly attractive and then without being a kind of big bang solution which is what the development community yeah. tends to you know the, the the approach it tends to take to regenerate in a place yeah yeah in my this this does that in a more in a in a more small scale fashion, um, yeah. and you know adds to that kind of that wider tapestry without, you know, displacing communities and disrupting you know entire social ecosystems as you know big developments often do. I mean, it's, yes. it's the antithesis in many ways of like the huge motorways that were built through places like Glasgow in the post-war period. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know the cumulative effect of those interventions is absolutely huge positive cumulative effect yeah and i, and I think uh, what so sort of taken back on the on the placemaking use of placemaking actually what i what you're describing is urban user ux effectively so for my day-to-day job we talk about ui and ux um and i'm sure you know what the, the user experience effectively so what you've got with your what you're describing with your filter is something that's convenient easy to use and pleasant to use uh, and that's the so it's urban UX, isn't it? Really, rather than placemaking. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No. Absolutely. Cool. Cool. Okay. Question two. So it's just a, it was just a minor tangent to express yes. my love, my bromance with um, Clyde Lokes and and his yeah, work yeah. in in Waltham Forest. No, appreciate it. And and the Waltham Forest stuff came up when we started doing the bus lane stuff in Chester. That came up. That's the 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 place that some of the guys involved with the transport decisions had been down to Waltham and and had a look around and. Clyde does love to take people on a little bike tour. I'm still awaiting mine, but yes. um, you know, at some point. But yeah, he, he's he's done a lot of that. And I think he has advanced the cause through practical demonstration yeah. of the fact that the sky, you know, has not fallen in because they've delivered some attractive rainwater gardens and, and filters. Um, yeah. In fact, quite quite the opposite. Quite the opposite has happened. You know, this yeah. is led to a huge social renaissance in the uh, in the communities in which it's been delivered and i hope there are more to come you know i think clyde has done a huge amount to demystify um the delivery of these schemes and to to, you know, to demonstrate to politicians who perhaps do not are not possessed of the same level of political courage that clyde is yeah. That you know, shortly after the delivery of these schemes, even if there is some degree of opposition at the time, and you know, Clyde never misses an attempt, quite rightly, to remind people that when he delivered the Mini Holland, literally hundreds of opponents turned up and they brought a full size coffin declaring that Walthamstow was dead because mm. of what he'd done, right? And harassed them in the streets. And then the opposition as it always does, immediately melted away. And Rachel Aldred of the Westminster Active Travel Academy, yeah. I think last year or the year before, conducted some polling in the area and found that only 3% of local residents would want it to go back to the way it was before. So, you know, Clyde is an object lesson in politicians who have convictions, stay in the course, you know, delivering schemes based on, you know, evidence 
um, you know, that they that they deliver what is intended, um, but stay in the course through that difficult initial period of of, of delivery. Um, you know, and that was probably a skill that I also had as well. Some might say stayed the course too strongly, too often, but you know, that's a matter of opinion, I suppose. Yeah. Well, if it's getting stuff, if it's getting stuff done, is what you need to do. So a couple of things there. Um, just to pick up on that, Clyde, if you ever listen to this, uh, uh, John's after a talk, he was waiting for his invite. And uh, and you mentioned Rachel Aldred as well. She's done some great stuff um, in terms of. Well, I think you, you, I mean, I think, you know, Rachel's got an incredibly thick skin as well. Rachel is not someone I mean, I think I've spoken to her in person once. I did a, an event at Westminster and we had a, a chat, um, but obviously I followed her excellent work in this field um, very closely and you know she, she's just uh, when I see her not bite um, in a way that I'm you know incapable of you know when I see kind of people attempting to rubbish her research based on nothing other than the fact that they want to maintain the status quo and drive their fragile man pickup truck through the streets of inner London boroughs you know, I just I, I've got nothing but kind of admiration for people who can continue keeping on, keeping on, and take that kind of thing on the chin. Whereas I've always been a bit more of a political street fighter who's willing to 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 roll his sleeves up and get out there. And you need all of those people in the yeah. in, in, in you know, but it's you know it's quite hard. But I do, you know, I'm a huge fan of uh, of Rachel and the team's work. Um, and I'm even bigger fan of the way in which she takes the criticism that inevitably come from people who you know benefit from maintaining things the way they are yeah yeah uh, and it, it's yeah like you say it's uh, there's two ways of dealing with it and i think you're right you need both boys um because in the end uh i suppose the the limitation what what i appreciate about how you operate is that you know there's a criticism there you'll defend it and you'll defend it like with the facts um and i think i'm probably i would probably be more on Rachel's approach of it of just saying, well, okay, you're going to say that. I'm just going to come back to you with another clear, calm point and say, well, okay. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what I, I think what I've brought to all this, yeah, no, absolutely. But I think what I've brought to this is this whole kind of movement is firstly, um, you know, I'm from a very working class background. My mum's a cleaner in the NHS. My dad's a spark. Um, I'm not one of the usual suspects and I think environmentalism yeah. and, you know, which is the greatest existential, you know, global warming, the greatest existential threat in human history, but environmentalism needs more working class people involved in it. So I brought a bit of that, but also the nature of a lot of people who are involved in environmentalism tends to be a bit more passive. They're not, mm. you know, they don't value being tough and aggressive and i don't think that they're necessarily virtues but they are something that you know they are features of my kind of personality and i've often had people come to me and say you know i'm glad you got stuck in there because i couldn't say that i'm glad you threw the boot in there because that's not how i operate and that's why you know you do need those two groups of people and i think also yeah. i think cyclists people campaigning or and more generally environmentalists and people campaigning for a for 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 a better world from an environmental perspective, which I would argue is, you know, benefits everyone. So from a much wider perspective are, you know, bullied off the roads, they're bullied in the media, they're, they're monstered by, you know, MPs and the leaders of political parties. And I think they need 
basically a tough bastard to stick up for them yeah. every so often. And, you know, I'm, I don't know whether I'm always happy to play that role, but it's a kind of role I've, I've fallen into. I think it comes back to what we were saying, I think, before we started the uh, the, the recording was, um, you know, I will I encourage the work of our local council because I don't think they hear the positive response to what they're doing. Um, and, and I think it's important. Otherwise, there's a risk that they just give up because they're only ever hearing negative stuff from the people that don't want things to change. Um, whereas the people that it is changing for, well, there's no need to make a noise about it because it's going the right way. Um, but if that isn't heard, so then there's there's that element of uh, it's it's kind of the complementary to where you are and saying if something's not happening, you need to make a fuss about it and, and be heard and defend the guys that are quite happily seeing benefits. Uh, but also that you need that continuous positive encouragement and um, uh, a measured challenge as well, where stuff is, you know, highlight. Uh, so I, I spend a lot of time working with um, um, Dutch uh, the, the guys I work with mostly are Dutch. and They're an extremely they, unflappable people, the Dutch, aren't they? I found that yeah. recently. Yeah. Extremely. Really, on, they're not, they're very much on a level. I mean, my, my experience of them has been quite limited, but they don't get overly emotional, do they? No, and it's always very direct. So um, there, there's what, so what I've found over the, the last 15 years of where I've been working with primarily a Dutch team is that I've ended up losing some of the Englishness in the way that I deal with people and how I talk to people. So I've become much more direct to the point where I've been told I'm too direct, when actually all I'm doing is stating facts and saying, well, we're doing this and we need to do that. Oh, but you shouldn't have said it like that. Well, well sorry, but <laughs> this is what we're trying to do. So let's just get well, if you done. want direct, Andy, you're just down the road from Liverpool and you will be aware of just how direct we can be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe exactly. that's a port. Maybe it's. A, I, I've often thought maybe it's a, again on the geography point. You know, port cities tend to have more in common with each other than cities yeah. within their own country that are landlocked. You know, I've been. You know, it, it, Liverpool has a, like a lot culturally in common with Glasgow. You know, yeah. to some extent, Newcastle. But if you go to Naples. Naples is is basically like. Do you ever remember Rab C Nesbitt? And there's a massive tangent I'm going off on here, but he goes on a holiday to Spain at one point, right? Right. And he has this amazing connection where he's like ranting. He's in his string vest, right? And he's got like a sweatband on and a ciggy behind his ear, and he's like shaking his newspaper and sort of ranting. And then across on the other side of this little ravine on the other side of the town, there's a Spanish guy in a spring, string vest and a sweatband, and he's got a Spanish newspaper, and he's, like, ranting in Spanish on the other side. But, like, Naples is a bit like that to Liverpool. It's, like, basically the same place, but with Italian accents. Culturally, yeah. very similar places. And I think people in poor cities tend to be a bit more direct than maybe the nature of water in uh, in, uh, in Dutch geography makes them mm -hmm. a bit more like poor-type people. Although one of the interesting things, there was a documentary on Sky Arts about Vermeer recently, Mm -hmm. One of the things I found fascinating is that the Netherlands is, has for hundreds of years essentially been um, an urban stream. It's, it's been an urban society in a way that the rest of Europe wasn't. So back in like the 1500s, when the majority of people lived in rural communities in other European countries, 75% of people in the Netherlands lived in cities. And one of the other really interesting features of Dutch society at that time was that painting 
um, and, and having paintings in the home was not the preserve of the ruling class. Everyone had paintings in the home. They, they estimate they had an average of 10 paintings in a house. So the butcher would have had them, the baker would have mm -hmm. had paintings. And I, it's interesting how being like an urban society um, plays out in quite different ways. So I think, you know, that explains the fact that the Netherlands is a historically urban society maybe explains the directness with which people communicate because the more urban you are, I think, mm -hmm. in, in Britain, the more direct people tend to be, you know, working class yeah. Londoners, direct. Yeah. People from Liverpool, direct. You know, mm -hmm. and that, that's my... That's my experience anyway. Totally unrelated to the rest of this, but yeah, just no, wanted to allow my brain to go on a walk, as my wife says. Yeah, you're, you're probably quite right, and uh, yeah, it's um, that's an interesting angle. Uh, I'm just I'm just trying to think of another example of other direct people I've met. We lived in New Zealand for a while, and um, and no, the guys notoriously met direct, I'm told. Yeah, yeah, but I guess it's all they're all <laughs> they're all islanders, so effectively they're all in the port, aren't they? Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. Very interesting. <laughs> so, uh, so next question. Next question, yeah. <laughs> we might just scrap the questions. Uh, question two, when was the last time you needed a map? It was it was after Groningen, actually. So it's more recent than that. Um, but it didn't have an analogue um but didn't have an analog map. And it's quite interesting. Where was it? So we got stranded in Amsterdam for two days because DFDS, and this was another kind of recent irritation of mine. Like I don't fly off and set foot on a plane in, in, in eight years. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, big advocate of um, carbon taxation for flights. Bear in mind, 75% of flights in the UK are taken by 15% of people. But I recognize just like the cars, you know, yeah. flight will continue to, to 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 be a feature of industrialized societies. We just don't need to do quite so much of it. A lot of it is is discretionary. Um, been a be quite hard for me. I mean, next next year when we go to the the continent, I'm just going to go down through and uh, you know and use Eurostar, um, yeah. which I've always used historically. But I thought to try the DFDS from Newcastle, quite mm. good going out, coming back, total disaster. It was like thirty odd degrees in in Amsterdam. Coach yeah. turned up for the transfer. Sorry, there's a technical fault. Didn't even send a member of staff. I mean, there was a woman there with kind of, she was a single mother with two kids. She said, I've got no more money. And they were like, well, there's nothing we can do for you. So you need to find somewhere to stay. So then right. we, were stranded for two, we were stranded for two nights in um, in uh, in Amsterdam. Worst places to be stranded, admittedly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at, at significant cost. Um, and then... Um, we were looking for a, we'd kind of like booked a, a place to go and have something to eat for lunch um, and um, and I was I was trying to use Google Maps to uh, to get there right it was in the back street to central Amsterdam and uh, and my phone died naturally yeah. Um, yeah. and you know uh, thereby proving my um, lifelong um, you know, maxim that analog is always superior to digital. Um, and uh, you know, had I have had my, had I've had my paper map of Amsterdam, yeah, uh, I'd have been able to find it much more easily. So yeah, so an example of how I think that you know, digital mapping has transformed the world and the way mm -hmm. in which we we view the world, the way in which we 
navigate our cities. Um, but I think we we lose a huge amount from that as well. So let's set aside for a moment the uh, possibility, if not the likelihood, of technical failure when it comes to digital mapping. Let's presume for a moment that no one ever has a battery that runs out. You know, by taking um, an, an optimal route to yep. your location, you're very likely to miss important encounters that changes the way in which people flow around our cities. People yep. don't go uh, missing, uh, you know, but actually further to that point, and I don't know if you saw that I tweeted about it earlier in the week, an example of in which digital mapping, um, sorry, it was one of my neighbours coming past, <laughs> a digital, ma- digital mapping um, and, and, and GPS tagging you know, needs to be used more is that my grandmother um, went missing. She suffers from dementia and went missing from the house. Yeah, I did, did see it, yeah. Yeah, for, yeah. for 12 hours this week uh, and was found basically by luck. And, mm-hmm. you know, if she'd have had a GPS tag, which is what I think everyone with, I mean, this is part of an ongoing dialogue within the family that I won't go into now. Yeah. But, you know, I think I think as standard, people who are living relatively independently but still uh suffering dementia you know that's where gps tra- tagging could significantly improve welfare of people like that and reduce the stress associated with you know family members who are at work and don't necessarily know you know if their mother does or their father does go missing they're gonna be yeah. able to find them quite 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 quickly i mean this could have ended really badly um yeah. And, and just by luck, it didn't. So I suppose you might say when I really needed a map or when the family really needed a map, that a digital map that worked quite well and was maybe connected up to GPS was when my grandmother went missing this week. Yeah, yeah. And, and that and that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because there's there's a there's a whole load of slippery slope of where you go with that um, in, you know, I totally as a, as a as an example of needing tagging. That's a brilliant example. Um, the the. The other side of that is, so my wife goes out on a bike and she's got a, a little Garmin computer that sits on the bike there and it's got a system on it that if if she stops suddenly um, uh, and she's got that, that warning set up, it will send her emergency contact number a text. Um, so it's supposed to be if you fall off your bike or you get knocked off, you have an accident, it sends a text out. But she set it off a number of times just by stopping too quick. Yeah, <laughs> and then it buzzes out, and then she says, "Oh, I'm sorry, I sent you a text. I'm only, I just, I'm fine. I just stopped. That's all it is." That's too much information for me. I think. Yeah. I, I mean, I, t- yeah. I tweeted, she- I, I tweeted, I tweeted a while back because I, I think a lot about, you know, the and I, you know, I, I, I I'm very interested in analog and low carbon yeah. solutions and low tech solutions to some of the challenges that we face, and I would recommend um, to anyone who's kind of similarly interested. Um, in such interventions that can help maintain a high level of material prosperity but in a much um, lower impact way have a read of low tech magazine um which is a lot either you've come across it before presumably runs off a solar array so sometimes when there isn't enough power the website doesn't run but you know that's fine (laughs) you don't need to you know and and that that helps them i think to to talk a bit more about the necessity of continuous operational technology right uh but they also produce analog versions and i helped edit i think to some extent a little bit the um the first volume um and got and got myself a a free copy of it in exchange for that 
way back when. Um, but I would definitely recommend that website because it gives you, you know, there's an important focus on good design and on how we can design for a much lower impact lifestyle whilst also maintaining and perhaps even enhancing the quality yeah. of our the quality of our lives. Um, I don't actually know where that came from then. Yes, yeah, the no, it doesn't matter. Um, but it's a good, oh, so that was coming from, so to summarise, um, the the point I'd made about my wife and her. Oh, yeah, bit. sorry, now I've got, yeah. and then I tweeted. Too, too on, I was reflecting on that and I tweeted, you know, again, another kind of maxim of mine is enough technology to facilitate human flourishing, exactly. not so much technology as to make humans obsolete. Yeah. I think that finding that sweet spot is very important. Yeah, yeah, and it, and 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 it was interesting. So that that piece of kit that I described, the reason that I know about it and have heard about it, I didn't know the text. I think it did come through, but she's like, "How the hell do I turn this off? I don't want it." She hadn't realised yeah. she'd even turned it on. I don't want you getting. Well, I know the bit, the, the bit, the been instances in which like controlling partners have used technology like that oh, as yeah. well to basically keep tags on people, but then. Yeah. Equally, I'm sure you would agree that in the case of Minan, you know, that technology then, you know, becomes yeah. potentially a life-saving technology. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and, and that has wider benefits because I think for anyone who's been in that situation where effectively they've got a dependent older relative, you know, all of my family are still in work. My parents had their kids yeah. when they were really young. So my mum and dad are kind of like in their mid-60s. Mm -hmm. You know, they're then if you haven't got the reassurance that person isn't going to walk out the house and disappear somewhere, then that's a massive stress. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, again, I think that that's something that could, could, could help it, you know, I, an example yeah. of how digital geography, if you will, can, um, can, can, can enhance the quality of our lives. But the point about Google maps before is, you know, that, that does, reduce you know it does fundamentally change the old kind of you might have seen this in jane jacobs the death and life of great american cities and if you've not read that that's something i think as someone who's very interested in this subject matter i think is i mean it's massive um yeah. unfortunately it's like a thousand pages long but it's brilliant and it tells the tale of how jane jacobs who was effectively a self-taught planner come urbanist right mm -hmm. helped defeat robert moses's attempts to run things like the west manhattan highway through the middle of washington square park and things like that but you know the geography is a huge element of that that book you know so one of the one of the key tools you know self-teaching tools that you use was that at the time she you know she was would have been very unusual on the streets of new york to see an adult female cyclist right yeah. Because uh, it was a car city, you know, long before, say, London, even. And, you know, she used to cycle around a lot and she used to, you know, you see and experience the urban environment in a completely different way when you walk or when you cycle or when you take public transport than you do in a car, which requires a high degree of concentration and hermetically seals you off from yeah. wider society, which is why, of course, survey data shows the you know the desensitizing um effect of driving towards other road users because you're kind of wrapped in that, that bubble of individualism whereas you know and as a consequence you know I, i'm trying i'll misquote him but another great novel is bowling alone by robert putnam is an is another great novel which talks about the decline of the social life of america 
and, mm-hmm. he, and he uses the you know the decline of participation in bowling leagues in the post-war period or after the 50s as an example as a as, yeah. a, as an abstract against which to measure the, the kind of social collapse of american society but you know he talks about the car being demonstrable bad for community life from the perspective of you know commuting time so the more you commute the less likely you are to um, engage in your community found every additional 10 minutes car commute a day reduced the participation in the wider community by over 10 percent for example yeah. but also he talked about how it can lead to the deterioration of the wider public realm because you never experience it you basically go from you basically use your car to go from the kind of private vectors of your life, which are the workplace and the home, or yeah. and then maybe the supermarket, but you never get out and walk the streets. So you never go, you know, there's dog crap everywhere and litter here. This needs solving. Whereas, war, you know, pedestrians, See that, wheelers, yeah. Yeah. public transport users experience the public realm in a much more real way. Um, yeah. And that's why, you know, one of the reasons I think that their opinions on how we, construct the public realm should be much more highly weighted than uh, those of drivers. I wonder, yeah, and I'm wondering there that there's there's an interesting thing to explore, which I don't think is a big concern, but there is a risk. And I think that's, I thought that was where you were going with the Google Maps description where, you know, you set in your destination and it puts you on that path and you never vary off that because you, you're being explained where to go by, by the map deciding for you. Um, I wonder if there's also the risk of people Doing, using the technology, overusing the technology to to control, not to control, to advise where they're going, what they're doing each day. So then they're missing out. You know, you could see how that would happen even without a car. There's situations where you might just be so focused on what it's telling you and where you're going, but you're not taking in anything else. You know, you see what people walking around on their phones anyway, you're reading stuff and doing out whatever and just sort of walking around because they know they know the streets locally. But there is that risk going somewhere new um, that as you say, a high risk of actually missing the whole experience completely because it, you're absorbed. Yeah, but, but the but the, implica- the implications of that are, are wider. So the implications yeah. for street street crime, for example, of yeah. corralling people through certain locations rather than allow people to filter naturally as they might otherwise do, mm. right, mm-hmm. to those locations and take alternative routes is you significantly increase footfall in some areas whilst yeah. also... Um, diluting or eliminating it elsewhere uh, and that can then potentially create non-spaces within the urban environment which allow petty um, and then not so petty crime to proliferate outside of the uh, the, the outside of the, view, the views of the, the kind of wider public and you know I think one of my persistent arguments about the importance of um, footfall in our cities, which can be achieved, of course, also through, um, you know, reducing motor vehicle dominance because people tend to then walk or cycle or public use public transport more, um, is, you know, we, 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 we need to think about the, you know, the, the, the delivery, policies that help I think lead to a resurgence in the rich social lives of our cities you know they put more eyes on the street and the reason that's a good thing from a crime and antisocial behavior perspective is that the police deal with the fallout from crime they're not as a rule 
there to prevent crime from happening in the first place. In fact, you know, citizens prevent crime through their presence, you know, rather yeah. than the police through active crime fighting initiatives. Um, so we do need to think about the extent to which digital mapping affects the flow of people through our cities and the wider social implications of that. Yep, cool. Um, 